And God knows what he's doing, and he's still a good God, even though right now he's a mystery. Right now we don't understand what he's doing. One thing I mentioned last week, that I didn't mention last week, and that I think is very important, is that the purpose and meaning of life. The purpose of life is not me fulfilling my dreams. I'm a dreamer, and I mean, you know, to, that's a big term right now, you know, dreamers. And so it's great being a dreamer. I have a dream, and we all have visions and dreams and things that we want to be, but that's really not the purpose of life. I believe in dreaming. I believe it's right, and I think it's biblical, but it's still not the purpose. The purpose of God is God's glory. Yes. It's not my blessings. It's not my timetable. It's not my expectations. It's not even, here it goes, it's not even my needs. It's not the purpose of life. You know, sometimes when you work with people who are like disenfranchised and they've been denied even like food and shelter and, and provision and those things, they're so consumed with their needs, it's hard for them to even think about spiritual things. But even that is not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is the glory of God. And sometimes God will take away my comfort. Sometimes he'll take away my blessings. Sometimes he'll hold back on my expectations. Sometimes he will delay my dreams. Sometimes God will take away things that I feel I absolutely need to make sure that my priority is right, that my life is focused on a thing called the glory of God, his glory. He wants to make sure that I love him first. He wants me and he wants you not to be users of God, but to be lovers of God. He wants you and I to worship him not because of what we get from him. We want, he wants us to worship him because of who he is. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a unique thing, and sometimes he takes away things so that that can be revealed in our heart, that either it's, it is there or it's not there, <coughs> or to get us to the place where that becomes what our heart is, that we love him absolutely for who he is. And so this brings us today to a person in the Bible called Job. So you're reading your Bible and you see this, this book called J-O-B. It's not Job, it's Job, by the way. Okay, I'm reading the book of Job. You're not reading the book of Job, you're reading the book of Job. And so Job in the Bible. You know, when James, the, the leader of the church of Jerusalem in the first century, who was the natural brother of Jesus, when he wrote and encouraged the church in his day in the first century, he, he, he went and he pointed them to look to the Old Testament and to look at the book of Job and the person of Job as an example of what they had to endure before they would receive the promises of God. And he said, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. Job's per perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. God restored Job, but he took him through an intense dealing. The Lord is full of compassion, and the Lord is full of mercy. Can everybody say amen to that? Amen. Even though I may go through some very, very difficult things, okay, I can say this, that the Lord is full of compassion, and the Lord is full of mercy. You know, if I, if I look at my life, and if you just didn't know me, and you saw a, bio, a biographical sketch of my, my life, you would say, you know, Bob has faced some things. that He's got enough things stacked against him to not believe in a good God. I mean, my mother was a paranoid schizophrenic, and she had massive epileptic grand mal seizures my whole life. 
Okay, so I, I, I had to deal with that. I learned how to do, deal with seizures at the age of seven. I mean, I, I knew what it was to how to deal with a grand mal seizure of an adult. My brother, because my mom was pregnant with him, she can't, had a seizure that she didn't come out of for a number of days. And so he had brain asphyxiation, and he was born profound, profoundly challenged, never developed past two or three months, and he was autistic and put away in an institution at the age of five, and he died he died in 2006, and, you know, when, when I first finally met him, because my family kept him in a place where they, they just kind of put him away, you know, his body was just scarred up. I could tell that people took organs out of him and everything else. It was a sad scenario. You know, I, I was massively sexually abused for, for basically seven years of my life and went through a great intensity of being physically harmed if I betrayed the one who was the perpetrator, right? I lived in a trash-filled house for 20 years because my mom had lost her mind, and, and we were evicted from apartment from apartment, and we lived in poverty, and then, and then I had a, I, we, we lost our first baby, our first pregnancy, a miscarriage, and then, and then, you know, now that we are raising daughters or having kids, I had a daughter born with a profound condition called lysencephaly, smooth brain disorder, where they gave her a 50% chance to live till two. And then we just kind of went through what we did with Ryan here three months ago where he he preparing to preach here. He had a brain aneurysm and went into heaven at the age of 34. You know, I got enough things stacked up in my life to say, you know, where's God? Where's God? Now, I don't think I have a monopoly on suffering, but I have had my share. And in my share, I had some justifications to say, God, you know, where are you in all this? But, you know, I can say I'm overwhelmed with how merciful God is and I'm overwhelmed in the midst of that how good God is and how through all those things he has made me, my family, more than conquerors and even our church more than conquerors and not allowing those things to defeat us because I can give you a ton of stories on the other side of the good faith, goodness of God, his faithfulness, his miracles, his intervention. God's just good. It just ain't a, just an easy walk, this thing called life. So let's define this series. The challenge of this series is this. The challenge of this series is how can we pursue God's promises with great faith and expectation and at the same time surrender to the sovereignty of God at the same time? How can we pursue God with great faith and expectation and yet surrender to the sovereignty of God at the same time? I find that we have kind of an all or none type of an approach. We either just just, we're just submitted, whatever you want, Lord, kind of like Allah wills, like, you know, in Islam, passive. Or we just contend, 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 and when something doesn't happen, we have an inability to surrender to the sovereignty of God in the situation. Somehow, God failed us, God's wrong. My attitude, I've watched people, they lose their faith and get knocked off their horse. We, we got to be tougher than that. Come on, the tension can be resolved between these two things. But one of the things that needs to take place, we cannot live with a simple, rigid theology that, that explains everything in nice packages. You know, when I teach on Wednesday nights, and, I, and I, from here on out, one of the things that I'll be doing is teaching Wednesday nights. I've taken, we've, I've taken people through the book of Hebrews so far. We're almost all the way through the book of Mark, and uh, Darcy's going to pick up for me this Wednesday night. But... Uh, you know, it's interesting, people raise their hands in our classes, and they, they got real simple, rigid, theological, nice packaged things that explain everything to them. But unfortunately, the Bible gives us a lot of tension 
to, it's a little bit more difficult just to put things in nice, sweet packages, and I have to help them through these things. Sometimes our walk is messy. Have you, have you noticed that? I mean, it would be great. It's just everything was just good, but everything's just not good. You say, well, Bob, when you have to go travel to help pastors, what do you do? I sit down with them, and they're bleeding all over me because they found out in ministry that everything's kind of messy. Okay, that the kingdom is messy, the church is messy, that the devil's messy, that sin is messy, that people with all their insecurities and psychological issues are messy. Life, life is messy. And so I'm trying to help these pastors get through the mess to get the promises of God to fulfill what God wants to do in the church. Life does get messy. Sometimes God's a mystery. Have you ever found God to be a mystery? Yeah. Like, where are you? What, what, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. And you know, sometimes these things don't make sense, and then we have to get to this place where we surrender to the sovereignty of God without losing our faith. So, the book of Job helps us out. Let's talk about the book of Job and what's called the God problem, and I'll define the God problem here in a second. The book of Job, probably the oldest story, or the oldest book in the Bible, most, most scholars believe that Job existed during what's called the patriarchal period. The time when Abraham was, was being called out of Earl of the Chaldees and he was a part of that ancient group in the, in the earlier part of, of human history. His, his story and his relationship with God was echoed through Jewish history and uh, could have been a recce document or oral tradition and, and some believe Job wrote this and that book was just passed on. Others believe that it was a part of the story of Israel's history that a scholar during the time of Solomon wrote this book down and uh, out of a pastoral concern to answer a great question that we're going to define here in a second to help people deal with this tension that I just talked about between our faith and going for it and this thing called the sovereignty of God where sometimes things don't make sense and we have to surrender. Job starts off in the dimension of the spirit world, something that you and I don't have a perspective of because we don't live in that dimension. But in that particular dimension, the book starts off that the sons of God appeared before God. The sons of God being archangels and angels and angelic spirits. And in the midst of that, it seems that the Lord loves to do counsel with his creation. God loves team ministry. All right? And so he, in his counsel, he, he brings the sons of God in. And, and there, and no one knows how to figure that one out, Satan appears with the group. And there, in there, God addresses Satan and he asks him this question, have you considered my servant Job? We'll be reading the scripture in a little bit. Have you seen this guy who hates evil and loves good? There's just no one likes him who walks on the earth with such a blameless attitude. You know, God takes delight, not the fact that he just covered you with the blood of Jesus because you put faith in Christ, but he delights after your heart. He's pleased with you. God looks at those things and He's one day going to reveal your motives on the day of judgment. And he, there's going to be some thank yous. Thank you that you did that. Thank you you did it for me. And thank you that was your choice. He, he delights in who you are as a person. Don't, don't deceive yourself. It's just all about what Jesus did. and It has nothing to do with what I do. No, God delights in your heart and your heart of response and your heart of obedience. And God says to Satan, have you considered Job? It would be like him saying, have you considered Greg, have you considered Isaac? Have you considered Noel, Brent, or Dan? Have you, have you considered them? And what happens in this conversation 
is that, is that Satan, whose name means accuser, the word devil means to accuse, he accuses. He basically says to God, I'm giving to you the Bobby Gregor paraphrase, God, you are a fool. Because he worships you with an evil motive. His godliness is, is immersed and soaked in a self-gain uh, agenda where he worships you because of what you've done with him. I, and of course, he's, Satan says, I can't get to him because you have him hedged in, which shows that God protects us. I remember being in Afghanistan and leading a bunch of people to the baptism of the Holy Spirit one night in, uh, in this particular meeting place that Alessandro took me to. He's, you know, he's kind of you know, doing, you know, doing the kebab thing with the bros, okay, where you sit down with your legs crossed, which I don't do real well. I have tight hip flexors. I was in pain the whole night. You know? But you know, these, guys, these guys are gnarly, all new converts coming out of Islam and smuggling Bibles over 10,000-foot, 14,000-foot mountain passes and putting their life at risk. And I mean, these, these guys were like the real you know, special ops guys of the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, we, we, I led them to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they were getting loud and worshiping God. The next day, the police were after us, you know, trying to figure out where we were. That's kind of the only thing I want to do is really get arrested in Afghanistan. But, uh, but in that, God protected. God was preserving us as we were, I always kind of sing the Mission Impossible song when I'm in some of these nations. You know, dun, 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 I always feel like I'm doing undercover. But how about God protects us. He says, listen, there is a hedge. There is a hedge around him. I can't get to him. What shows you two things, that God is involved in a way where he's still preserving us in times of temptation. He's not allowing it to be beyond what we can bear, the Bible says. But somehow he's involved without being the enticer himself. He can limit it. The second thing is, is that evil comes at us from a personality called Satan. He says, you remove the hedge and let me after him. And I'm going to show you exactly why he worships you. And what the motive for his godliness. Because it's really all about what he gets from you, not because he loves you. And so he says, go ahead. Touch everything he has. I put it in your power. And except don't touch his body. And sure enough, storms come through and blow away all, all of Job's you know, farms and buildings. His raiders came in and his children were killed. And, and, uh, and uh, he lost everything. And one day he lost all his wealth. And one day he lost all his property. And one day he lost all his children. And yet he was physically well. And yet he just, his wife said, you know, curse God and die. You know, no, I'm going to worship him. And come on, I'm going to, naked I came into the world, okay. I'm going to worship him. I'm not going to blame God. Shall we receive only good from God? Shall we not also receive evil? That's what Job said. I'm going to worship him. I'm not going to give up. And then, of course, they have a second counsel. And he said, Satan said, let me have him. Let me get at his body. And he struck Job. Many people believe that he actually struck him with what's known today as elephantitis. I mean, he's swollen. He had boils all over his body. I don't know if you've ever had boils. I've had boils all over my body because of an immune issue. But uh, he broke a piece of pottery. So he had a piece of pottery as a scraper. And he's just kind of scraping his skin. I mean, this is a bad scene. You can imagine losing everything and you're just sitting there in sackcloth and ashes just scraping all the sores and the rashes off your body. I mean, it's a bad scenario. 
all because he was a righteous man. Now remember, James says, consider Job's and his perseverance. So if James says, look at that, that means, I mean, don't look at poor Job. We could be in the same place. And Job only has an earthly perspective. He loved God with all of his heart, and he, he hated evil, and he wanted to follow God, and he didn't know about the counsel going on in heaven, and, and neither did his three friends who came. And his three friends came, and what they did is they came with conventional, typical, common theology, which was this, that's a, <clears throat> that suffering takes place because the suffering party is guilty of some sin or some mistake. You know, the disciples of Jesus did the same thing in John 9, verse 2. There was a man who was born blind. And they, and they said to Jesus, as they, that, that as they stood before the man, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they had the same simple theology that suffering happens because someone has sinned or someone has made a mistake. Of course, Jesus' response to his disciples was what it was neither. Neither. But this has taken place that the works of God would be manifested. So some of you are in situations where it could be, I'm speaking metaphorically here, blindness. It could be you're scraping your body with sores with a clay, broken piece of clay. You could have lost everything. You could have had deaths in your family. And uh, you're sitting there, and uh, it's not because you made a sin or committed a sin or made a mistake. It's because God is somehow posturing to manifest a glorious miracle in your life. But you don't see that perspective. And so for chapter after chapter, these friends are just hounding him, trying to get him to repent of the sin or the mistake he made that brought on all this upon himself. Nice friends, huh? Nice friends. And so in that context, Job, not knowing what's going on in the heavenly perspective, is saying stuff like, I need, I need to, where's my good God? Where is he? He's not speaking to me. He's, he's a mystery. He's obscure. I can't grab a hold of him. I don't know what he's doing. I, I need someone to vindicate me because I'm innocent. Not really understanding that God was actually showing him off that God was actually taking him through something that ultimately would bring great glory to not only God, whose God's honor was at stake, where Job would worship God for who God was plus nothing else, but also that he would ultimately bless Job. But Job couldn't see it. He could only see what he was going through. And then God addresses Job. Even Job responds, for instance, to his friends. In, in, in Job chapter 12, verse 6, he says, but the tents of robbers are peaceful. In other words, the tents of thieves, they're having a party. They're prospering. They're doing really well. And those who provoke God are confident, who carry their God in their hands. They carry around their idols in their pockets in their hands. They provoke God. They don't want anything to do with God. They, they laugh at God. They mock God. And they steal from people. And their tents are blessed. So Job's saying to his friends, listen, man, look around. There's a lot of ungodly people that seem to be doing really well. Have you noticed that? You know the guys, the people are godless, and they just maybe they might be nice neighbors, but they don't want anything to do with God. And they got a beautiful boat in the yard and a, an Escalade, and you know a five-bedroom house, and you know they take vacations every year to the Caribbean, and you know they got a yacht that they kind of use down there. I mean, I mean, and, and yet they they seem to be happy. 
wealthy and healthy and everything else. And I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm, I'm driving a you know, car that sounds like a go-kart. And, you know, and we're barely making it paycheck to paycheck. And I don't, I, don't, I don't get it why God would not treat them the same way. I think I'm being treated by God right now and I'm his servant. That's what Job's going through. Of course, God shows up in the 38th chapter of this thing, and he, he just basically calls, calls Job to, to answer for his foolishness because he didn't understand what was going on. He says to Joseph, excuse, excuse me, to Job, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And he comes to answer Job. The Lord answered Job, who is this who darkens counsel with words of no understanding? You don't understand what's going on in the heavenlies. And, and what Job really came to realize is that he was trying to vindicate himself in his innocence, not trying to vindicate that God's purpose and God's sovereignty will rule at the end and God will ultimately be glorified in whatever this means. And Job repents, prays for his friends, his friends get restored because God judges his friends for their rigid theology. And Job restores everything back to Job. Interesting book. But the New Testament tells us to look at the book of Job. To hang on to as we have to persevere through our issues. Now here's the God problem. If God is all powerful and good, how can he allow the suffering of good people? That's the God problem. In the book of Job, that becomes the problem. That becomes the dialogue. And um, we have a lot of different responses to that particular question. Man's possible conclusions are this. One is this, that God's not all powerful. I mean, things happen outside of his knowledge and outside of his power. You can't blame God. He's not all powerful. But the Bible, even in the book of Job, declares that God is supreme over all things. Read chapter 42. He's supreme over all things. God even allows us, out, out in his sovereignty, he allows this evil to take place. And this is what's hard for people to wrestle with. If God's all powerful, then he does allow this to take place. That is true. But not, he's not the one who's afflicting the evil on you, but he's allowing the evil to take place. The second thing people come to conclusion is God's not wholly good. It's kind of like there's a demonic streak in God. He just likes to walk around smiting people, just smacking them. It's like Bruce Almighty. Remember Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey? Okay, he tries, he gets to, he's just, everything's just going bad in his life, and he's out in the street, and he shakes his fist in the air, and he says, just smite me, almighty smiter. Okay, sometimes we feel that's that God. He's just a, he's got a demon streak in him. He just likes to spank people and whack people. And, you know, that's just God. Well, no, the Bible declares God is, is absolutely good, and absolutely love. And, and uh, the, the Bible, even the book of Job, brings that out. God is greatly proud of Job. God delights in Job. But yet God's going to allow Job to go through something, not to leave him there, but to ultimately restore and to bless him and to establish his honor because of an accusation that took place. Third, third you know, conclusion man has is God's aloof because man's responsible for the earth. This is kind of an interesting theology that I studied. I couldn't believe it. And they, they use scriptures and everything. They, the God made a covenant with man to, to rule the earth, and when he did... He had to remove himself, kind of like Christian deism. He's kind of like, you know, he has to move himself. And it's all about man and his mistakes, and God doesn't intervene. Well, the Bible doesn't speak like that of God. The Bible says, by him all things consist. 
All things are held together in Hebrews 1.3 by the word of his power. I mean, he holds everything together. Just look at the universe and gravitational pulls and, and gases around planets and everything else. I mean, if one little thing is just off, the whole thing just falls into chaos. God holds everything together by the word of his power. So he, he's involved. He, he, he's, the, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's involved. He, he commands the sea to go this far and no farther. The, you know, that, that's not a Hebrew concept. Or some would say man is innocent. And so therefore, this would make God unjust. That good person is innocent and suffering. Therefore, God is unjust. But God has a way of balancing the scales at the end of the day. And justice does prevail. Or they would say that man is guilty. And that's what Job's friend said, making man the problem. That's John 9, 2. Who sinned, this man or someone else, that, that he's born blind? I had one leader in the church for a while, that every time we faced a problem, he always said, oh, what, what, what did we do wrong? You know, you know we, we have problems not because we did every, something wrong. There wasn't some principle violated. There wasn't some mistake made. It's just things happen. Life stinks. Problems come. But he was always looking, trying to overturn the rock. If something went wrong. Well, that's a kind of a rigid view of life, and it's really what Job's friends held. It's a rigid theology. Or, final conclusion in this whole thing is God doesn't exist. Everything's by chance or fate or, or luck and uh, it kind of problems and pain and disease and destruction is just basically the fruit of a chaotic universe. You just didn't evolve well. Natural selection. You're just kind of one of the wobbly pieces that gets thrown to the side. Okay? And everything's just by chance. There's no fate. There's no determination of God's invisible hand guiding you to that. So you, you can try to make your future, but you have no hope of future. Well, that's what you're left with. Fatalism, determinism, and other weird isms. I don't like it. So what's the reality of human experience? The reality of human experience is this, is that some people suffer for their wrong choices, and some people suffer when making right choices. Now, I, I've had, in the last three months, I've had two ICU experiences. One with my son, Ryan, my son-in-law, Ryan. It's like a son to me. And uh, Ryan's death was a shock to everybody, a shock to my family. The last thing that Ryan was doing before he had a brain aneurysm is that he was covering what he was going to preach here on the first Sunday of April with his, with his brother-in-law, Mort, my other son-in-law, around a pool in Palm Springs on vacation. He was pumped up. This is what I'm going to preach on. This is what I'm going to do. And he was, he, was preach, he was working it out in his mind and his heart. Those were the last conversation he had. Walked into a house from the swimming pool and had an aneurysm. And three days later, we said goodbye to him. He did not do anything wrong. He's in a great place. We are the ones that are left behind suffering. He's in a great place, but and yet there was nothing that he did wrong. There was nothing that my daughter did wrong except go on a family vacation to bless their children. The other ICU thing took place here this last week. We have a family in our church. They're wonderful people. They're, they're climbing out of a, a long life of very hard drugs like heroin and meth and and you're talking about the, the, the wife started using this type of stuff at the age of 12. I mean, it's, it's a long track record. Their whole family's full of intense drug users. And, and his sister OD'd on meth 
this week and was in ICU at Peace Health on a, on a life support ventilator. And they sent me a text, would you please, on July 3rd, would you please come and pray? Would you come and pray in the ICU unit? I want you to know that I didn't want to come. I, I don't want to do that. I, I do not want to go in there. I don't feel real spiritual right now. I don't have great faith. And ICU units really have kind of a trigger in me right now. And I really don't want to go in there. And I didn't want to go for about 24 hours. I, you know, I can go. I can make an excuse. I'm on vacation. But I'd feel miserable if I said I'm on vacation. I don't go in there. I, I went through this argument. Finally, I said to my gospel Mark class, I, really, I got to do this tomorrow. I don't want to do this. Jeff Plummer in the class said, I'll go with you. So, you know, we went and picked up. These guys are running a fireworks tent. The, the brother, I said, hop in here. Let's go. Went in there. And sure enough, I went right into ICU unit. Nurse doesn't leave the side. They had a nurse in the room the whole time, 24 hours a day. This is how serious it was. I prayed the weakest prayer a Christian could pray. Okay, I had a bunch of nurses and things around, and so I didn't have much time to really, you know, go that little Pentecostal way. You know, the Lord says, you know, I'm healing you. I just anointed with oil, laid hands, and left the room. Jeff went in there, anointed with oil, laid hands, and um, she's thriving. She was in there, not because she was meditating on a sermon. She was in there because she OD'd on meth. She was there because of a choice. My son-in-law was there because he did not make that choice. It just came on him. He goes to heaven. She's getting healed. Now this does not make any sense at all. But it's life. And so human experience tells us that sometimes People don't do anything and they suffer, and sometimes people do wrong things and suffer. And sometimes even added to that, God heals the one who did wrong and not the one who did right. And you're saying, where's the justice? The Lord knows how to bring justice in the end. The Lord knows how to land this plane. The Lord knows how to bring about his purpose and his glory. And this is part of the tension we have in this thing called life. So you say, Bob, this thing's really real to you. It's extremely real to me. And where I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that we have to keep moving forward. I had to suck it up and go back to the rawness of my faith that God still is a healer and he intervenes. He wants to save this young lady's soul. My son-in-law's in heaven to show she and everybody else the power of his healing for his glory. So breaking out, of a, breaking out of a rigid theological box, the book of Job gives us another possible option, and that is this. His suffering gives us an opportunity, like no other experience, to show godly character. That's kind of a, what the book of Job does. It's not like I sinned and this therefore it happened to me, and if I'm innocent, I don't suffer. But sometimes I suffer because I'm being, showing, I'm being shown off. Sometimes I suffer because God's parading me. Sometimes I suffer because God is revealing what he's done in me to other people. You know, anybody can worship when you just got a, a raise at work. 
Anybody can worship when on your birthday someone gave you a two-week vacation to Hawaii and life's good and the extra thousand bucks and you know, everything can worship when, you know, you just had a week of, you know, thank you cards and affirmation cards like you're all right, just loved on and you come in and everything's going good with the family. But we try, try worshiping when your husband at the age of 34 just suddenly is gone. And that's what my daughter does every Sunday. She comes in and she lifts her hands like David of old and she just worships who he is for who he is. You have worship. And I've watched other people in this church in great pain. I know, I know personally from my pastoral relationship, they got everything that they could just quit on life and quit on God and they come into the house of God and they just, in faith, they just raise their hands that he's still in my life and he is still good. Now, now, now we have worship. And what God's doing, he's showing them off. This is what the book of Job gives us as a particular option. And so in this story, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. In other words, it's his godliness is driven by a wrong motive. He's out for himself. And he just worships you to get. He doesn't worship you to worship you. You're a fool, God. And of course, God said very well then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Shows you that even in our trials, God's controlling it. And he's not giving us more than we can bear. But we also know that sometimes in those trials, God's honor is at stake. Because maybe he's been challenged that the only reason why we love and serve him is because of what we get from him. And he's actually showing us off. And he's defending his honor that I have a people that love me for who I am plus nothing else. There's another perspective of suffering. So Satan becomes the third party in the equation. You know, sometimes in the modern Western church, we've kind of gotten so rational that we've kind of we kind of lost the faith that our world that we live in is affected by invisible entities called spirits, demons, and angels that actually affect the affairs of man and human history and governments and society and philosophy and ideology and, and practices and, 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 and things that, that are very, very uh, important to people that are not necessarily biblical and they kind of give themselves to that there's these invisible entities behind some of the things that take place. The Catholic exorcist book says we do not fight evil, something evil, we fight someone evil. And we have, we've lost that faith and that dimension of a spirit world that is part of the New Testament, part of the revelation of the Gospels, part of the revelation of the epistles that the Bible gives us. And yet while we're getting more and more natural and materialistic that all that matters is what we see and feel, the world is getting more and more occultic. It's kind of interesting to me. The world is getting more and more into the abnormal and the supernatural and, and into occultism and to these entities. And the church is getting more natural, 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 natural. And it's kind of strange to me. The New Testament 
gives us a worldview that we are fighting not against something evil, but someone evil. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, Matthew 4.1, to be tempted by this personality called the devil. The writers of the New Testament said there was this angelic world made up of God's ministering agents, agents that had power over nations and, and uh, that some fell and, and being doomed uh, were, 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 sent to, were sentenced to eternal judgment. But they, they, they opposed God and his will under an archangel by the name of Lucifer that we know as Satan, the devil. Jesus was led to be tempted by the devil. It says, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, the Apostle Paul, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So in his worldview, I'm being buffeted by a spirit entity that's assaulting me, and I am weakened by this thing, and I'm asking God to remove it from me. Paul said, put on the full armor of God that you can... Take your stand against the devil's schemes, his strategies, his, his craftiness, and how he's wanting to trip you up and destroy you. And of course, Peter says this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that kind of gives you a little bit of worldview that we're in a war. This isn't a cakewalk that when you were born into life, there was a war against you. When you were born into the kingdom of God, there was a war against you. That there is an agenda of, of an evil entity that wants to destroy you. And that you are to be a conqueror against that thing by faith and by obedience and by leaning on Jesus. But we are in a conflict. Life is war. Life is not just a picnic. It's a war. Reminds me of the records of of the American Civil War at the beginning. The first battle, first famous battle was the Battle of Bull Run. Bull Run and Manassas Junction is not too far from Washington, D.C. And so the, the Union Army and the, and the Union, you know, uh, loyalists believed that it was all going to be taken care of in one battle. It's kind of like a, we're going to decide this thing like over a rugby game. You do your haka, we'll do the haka, we'll kind of lock in a scrum, and best man wins and the war's over. So everyone came out to the battle with their carriages and their blueberry pie and their fried chicken, and they were going to watch the battle like it was a football game. Next thing that happens, the Union can't push the South back because there was a guy by the name of Stonewall Jackson who, who he and his troops wouldn't move. That's why he got his name. And the Confederates basically counterattacked, and the, it was called the Great Skedaddle. All of a sudden, all the Union troops are racing back to Washington, D.C. Bombs are going off. These carriages are flying up in the air with bonnets and blueberry pie, okay, getting wiped out by shrapnel. And all of a sudden, this isn't a little pretty event. We're, we have ourselves a war that eventually is going to cost 600,000 American lives. Well, the same way is true in the kingdom of God. We want to go on a picnic, but we're in a war. And there's an agenda to destroy us and oppose what God wants to do in our life. And that's a, that's a, that's a worldview that we've got to see. And we've got to bring that equation into this thing called suffering in our life. That is part of that conflict. That God allows so that we can be more than a conqueror. I can't conquer something that I don't have a conflict with. You've got to have something to conquer. So Satan's activity, what does he do? He does three things. Let me give you an alliteration here. He allures. In other words, he sways you to move away from God. He sways you to worship something else besides God. He sways you away from obeying God. He likes to persuade you to move away. 
And he does that by lying to you and deceiving you what is a better alternative. Sometimes he wants, he makes things appear very beautiful that are extremely destructive. That's going to destroy your life. But he makes it look really beautiful. Sometimes he says this will satisfy you and meet a need that you have in your life. You don't even need you realize you have. But it's going to meet your needs. It's called advertising. You, if when you wear this and have this and drive this and do this, then you're really, really, really living. And you get lured into these things. And he shares with you counterfeit gods and I mean, sex and power and image. And you know anything that might draw you away, sway you away, he's an allure. You know, behind those things. And sometimes he takes a belief system and he takes you to believe it to an extreme. And it destroys you and other people by the extreme belief, even in the Christian world, even in the Christian faith. There was a, a great prophet that was used by God by, by the name of Dick Mills. Some of you remember Dick Mills. and He, he memorized something like 1,500 scriptures, and he had a way of giving out verses to people, and a great prophet of the Lord. Back when I got saved, uh, there was kind of a national uh, uh, incident that took place with a Christian couple who basically had a diabetic daughter. I mean, Jan and Brent may remember this. And they removed their diabetic daughter from insulin, believing in faith that God would heal, and she died. It became kind of a national news. And it was kind of a, a tragedy of, of, use, of being extreme in their faith, and through that, their daughter died. Well, Dick Mills was in a meeting where they were in a meeting. He didn't know who they were. He stood them up, recognized them, not who they were, but just prophetically, he didn't know about the incident. He says, you know, the Lord tells me that you, you had a horrible situation take place. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing this, but that you acted foolishly and you were wrong in what you did. And the Lord forgives you. Now, these were Christian people. In other words, the Lord forgave them for their presumption and their extremism. Another situation took place with a great woman of God by the name of Ma Beale out of Detroit, Michigan who was mildly used by God in the 50s and the 60s, and a great prophetess of the Lord. She's in a, a conference where she stands a, a young minister up and, said, and she said, Sir, you are a heretic, and your heresy will destroy both you and those who follow you. And the minister that she ministered to, his name was Jim Jones. See, belief systems where Satan lures us away will eventually bring to our death and the death of other people. This is the real world we live in. Well, he assaults. I mean, he just attacks. He just attacks and attacks and attacks and attacks. And, 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 and sometimes he, he attacks our body. In Job's case, uh, it was the violence of nature. And in Job's case, it was the evilness of man's doings against man. In Job's case, it was disease that came against Job. Even Jesus' ministered. sometimes they associated the diseases with spirits and demons that were afflicting the body. And so there was this aspect. Sometimes that assault is on your character, or on your reputation, or you're being lied about, you're being attacked. Sometimes he comes with voices in this assault. And he says, ha-ha, where's God now? Where's your God now? You just lost your house. You just lost your health. You just lost your child. You just lost your marriage. Hey, 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 where's God now? When Jesus was on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes, they, they walked by and they said, well, where's his God now? He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. That mocking voice is always there 
when you're in that place where God's allowing something in your life to show you off. And then he alienates. He's an accuser. He, he alienated Job from God and God from Job. He said, God, listen, you're a fool. This guy, you think this guy worships you? He doesn't worship you for who you are. He worships you for what he gets. I mean, he's, he's a phony. I'm accusing that he is an absolute hypocrite. You know, one of the things we can't do in the church is that we can't side with the spirit of accusation. We, can't, we cannot judge one another's motives in church. You know, you know, that, uh, you know that Brent Stahl, you know, you know why he really serves like that. It's because, you know, this or that or the other. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to judge his heart. You're not allowed to go into a place that only God knows. And that's not Brent. I believe the best about Brent. Brent doesn't do that. I believe the best about him. You see, the enemy, through gobbledygook, always wants us to get into a place of accusation. And they do good, but really, what's their motive? What's their motive? And what he does, he alienates us. He alienates people from the church. You know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I, that's right, full of hypocrites, like you got your life all together. You know, you know sure, sure, we're all fall short. Sure, we got a lot of issues we're dealing with. Okay, it doesn't make us hypocrites. That person has a problem too, but they alienate themselves from the church and God's blessing in their life. So bringing this home, our response to the conflict of life, because we are going through the conflict of life. The first is this, that we need to discern. And you're in a place where God doesn't make sense and life is messy and you're suffering. You've got to discern. You've got to ask yourself what's going on because Paul said we do not struggle against flesh and blood. Sometimes you are suffering because you are actually in the middle of a demonic conflict. And you've got to discern, Lord, what is going on in my life? The second thing is that we have to, we have to resist. Come on, we need to resist. We're to resist temptation with truth. We are to resist evil with faith. We are to resist evil with justice. We are to resist these things. The Bible says resist him, standing firm, in the faith. We've got to resist evil. We've got to fight against evil. Do you pray for the sick? Absolutely pray for the sick. Come on, you, you, you want to try to stop hunger? Yeah, I want to stop hunger. That, that person's suffering. We've we got to feed them. A lot of Christians say, well, you know, the poor have, you have with you always. You know, that's because Jesus said that. Didn't say he, he didn't say don't do anything for the poor. There are lots of other verses in the New Testament that would say contrary to that. I just can't look at evil and just say ignore it. I've got to respond to it. To remove it. We have to fight faith. I can't just submit to deception. I have to fight deception with faith. Our response to the conflict of life, we need to stand. Some mountains we can move by faith. And some mountains we have to climb. So we have to climb those things that God allows us to endure. We have to stand. And so Paul said, though through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Because we've been justified by the works of Jesus, we now can stand in this thing called the grace of God. The grace of God's God's power. It's God's enablement. It's God's ability and my weakness to do what he's called me to do. And you boast in the hope of the glory of God. God is working in me. I don't know how many times on foreign field that I've preached with burning fever. And I got up there and I could hardly stand. But when I got up there, somehow grace sustained me to preach for an hour and minister to people. I crashed afterwards, but there was just seemed to be this 
thing on me that allowed me to be strong for that moment to do what God told me to do, even though my body was weak. We have to stand in the grace of God. And the last is that we have to trust. This is one of my favorite psalms. I haven't heard it ever taught on, but I love this psalm. Psalm 131. David said, my heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. In other words, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. In other words, I'm not going to try and figure everything out. I'm not going to do Christian speculation. You know, Christians love to speculate. They like to speculate about politics and speculate about events and speculate about this and speculate about the church and speculate why people are going through what they're going through. We love to speculate. But David said, you know, I'm not going to concern myself with what I really don't understand. I'm going, to, I'm going to submit to my limitedness. I'm going to be like this. I'm, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with his mother. Now, a weaned child, usually three, four, five years of age. A little child walking. You know, my grandchildren, they don't seem to be really worried about where their next meal is coming from. They don't seem to be worried even about the events that impact our family. They just like to hold your hand and play and trust and and that's what David said, I'm going to be. I'm just going to hold God's hand. I'm going to walk with him. And I'm going to trust that everything's going to be okay. I'm going to trust. I'm like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Both now and forevermore. Our response to those who are suffering, first is this. We need to throw away our rigid theology. We throw it away. You're going through this because you did something wrong. We've got to put away the pointing of the finger. I remember I had my mom here at this church for three years. In the last three years of her life, I took care of her. And to the most part, I kept her away from the church. Because my, our church, she, she didn't fit the average Christian's rigid theology. So people were starting to accuse me of unbelief. And accuse me of you know, just submitting to a situation that I, I dealt with for 45 years of my life, never walking in my shoes. And uh, some people even believed my mom's fantasies and turned against me, not realizing that she lived in a fantasy world. And so the church didn't have the ability to handle the complexity of suffering in that particular realm. You know, when people are going through stuff sometimes, the last thing they need is our rigid theology. You know, well, something went wrong here. Someone did wrong here. No one did anything wrong. Life happened. Satanic attacks happened. Something took place. And in the midst of that, the God is in control of the universe and the sovereign is showing you off and showing me off. Showing the love of Christ. Love, don't preach. They don't want a sermon. They don't want a sermon. We're not, we're not trying to find the why. We, we're just trying to do the how. This is what, what we do. We serve, we love, we hug, we carry. We, that's what we do. No preaching. And last, we bear the burden. In other words, your pain and the conflict of your life is now going to become a part of my life. And I'm going to carry this. I'll never forget Wayman Steele. I told this in the first the service this morning. I miss him. He's been a great friend of mine over the years, but uh, in situations, especially with my mom when she just went crazy and, and beat things to pieces with hammers and 
and just broke things to pieces and I'd have to take her to the hospital. I would come back and who was there at her trailer cleaning everything up? It was Wayman. Just there, cleaning it up. Sandy, just there, cleaning it up. Over and over and over again, the one thing he did, he would come to you and now your burden, the conflict you're going through, is now my conflict and what I'm going through. We bear one another's burdens. Let's stand to our feet. So why do I go through some of the things I go through? Why are certain things just seem to be a mountain that doesn't, I can't get to the top of it, and down, down the downhill slope, down the, down, uh, the downhill slope, and why, why, you know, my faith isn't moving it? Because maybe God's doing something in you. Maybe God's showing you off. I have a, a, a videotape in my office of a father-son triathlon team. It's called Team Holt. Son was a quadriplegic cerebral palsy kid who wanted to, who had a vocal box. He could start communicating to his dad that he wanted to actually be pushed in races. And his dad started pushing him. He started pushing him at the beginning in 5Ks, and dad about died. But he ended up where he actually, he had his son in triathlons. First thing he did, he forced himself to be able to push his son in the Boston Marathon. And they didn't want him to, but he did it anyway. He ended up being the Hawaii Ironman. He basically swam two miles with his son in a, in a rubber boat with a, with a parachute harness on. He swam two miles, picked up his son, put his son on a, a, a bicycle in a basket, and he basically rode his son 117 miles. And then he put his son in what you know is like a baby carriage type thing, and he ran 26.3 miles, and he finished within qualifying time in the Hawaii Triathlon. They wrote a book together. It was called It's Only a Mountain. When we go through these trials in our life, we've got to say, you know what? The grace of God is sufficient for me. I'm going to stand in his grace. God is good. I'm not going to try to explain things that are too wonderful for me. And it's only a mountain. We're going to get through this. And surrender to what God wants to do in our life.